Good morning. Grab your, open your Bibles up to the fifth chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 5. Now, a lot of you haven't been here, so I'm going to do a quick summary of the last couple weeks and then tie that into the message that I had for today. And that will bring us historically to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a very significant period. In 586 BC, the destruction of Jerusalem takes place and Israel loses her capital. And as a result, she no longer is a sovereign nation in any way. And she remains under captivity to foreign nations until 1948. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah are very significant books because these are the last two prophets that are ministering to Israel at a point where she still is her own nation. But the third judgment that comes forth upon that city brings them under, under uh, foreign captivity. And then, as I said, in 1948, she gets it back. The latter portions of both books, especially Ezekiel, are promises of restoration, and a lot of the things in that have been fulfilled within the last 50 years. So let me do a quick summary of some of the things that we've said because of the great historical context to it. And then next week, as, I, as we move on, I'll show you how that this is, brings us to the last section of the Old Testament where after Ezekiel, we move into things like Ezra, Nehemiah, and so forth, which is that latter period. Well, the books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, as we said, they are going pretty much hand in hand. Jeremiah is in Judah, and Ezekiel is over in Babylon. There were two periods, two waves of individuals that went in. Take, they were taken captive by the Babylonians and taken to Babylon. First was in 605. Daniel went in the first one. Then the second one was in 596. He's prophesying to the people, the elders and the people that have been transported to Babylon. Jeremiah at the same time is prophesying over in Judah, and neither one of them are received. Now, the way the book's divided up, it's into three portions. The first section, which goes to chapter 24, deals with the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's what we've really focused on. After that, from 25 to 32, he deals with the nations. I'm not going to bother to get into that, but I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the prophecies in 33 to 48, where they're talking about the restoration of Israel as a nation back to her land and things that are yet to occur. So what we've done in this study so far is we um, started out by showing you that a manifestation of the glory of God, which is called a theophany, is shown in, in chapter 1. And it's symbolic when you read it because what you read is something about a wheel within a wheel. Well, as we said, this is the chariot of the Lord. And God's throne was in the midst of this chariot. And on the sides of it were four living creatures with four faces. 
And he saw this revelation. It was a vision that he was given. And then as God spoke forth out of the chariot, he gave him a calling. And that calling was in chapter 2. That calling was that he was to be a watchman. And as a watchman, a watchman is like a guard. Uh, at the time I first spoke about it, we were having nasty weather. And it's, it'd be like a watchman, a guard of a city that's watching over it. They see trouble coming. They are supposed to speak up. Well, he says, I'm making you a watchman to the nation of Israel. We all, as Christians, are to a certain degree watchmen in that when we are moved by the Holy Spirit to bring forth God's word, to speak up toward something and not uh, let our light down, we're to be salt, we're to be light, if we do that, God says, don't be concerned about results. The results are up to me. But your responsibility is to bring forth what I tell you to bring forth. Ezekiel, if he did that, he was promised that their blood would not be upon his hands. But if Ezekiel quenched the spirit and chose not to bring forth what God told him to bring forth, then the blood would be upon his hands for failure to speak forth the word of God. And that's what a watchman is. So he knew, God knew, that it was going to be very difficult for what he was commissioning Ezekiel to do. And he was, his, his very name means that he will be strengthened. He was telling him, I'm going to strengthen you to do what I'm calling you to do. And his ministry is really far out in a lot of ways. It was described the way that he brought forth his prophecies in chapter 3, if you turn to that chapter real quick, and the last few verses, a lot of the time he was dumb. I don't mean intelligence-wise, but he could not speak. God told him, I'm going to cleave the, your tongue to the roof of your mouth. In verse 24, chapter 3, it says, The Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spoke unto me, and said unto me, Go shut thyself up within thy house. Thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon thee, and they will bind them, and thou shalt not go out among them. I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, and thou shalt be dumb, and shall not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. They wouldn't listen to him anyway. But God would make him to whereby he could not speak. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth. So God would proceed to give him prophecies and things to say. And when he did, then he would be able to speak. It was a quite a long period. I forget uh, what I shared with you last week, the length of time that he could not speak. But he was under God's control as he brought forth these prophecies. And he brought them forth in allegories and in symbols. This is what he's really known for. The symbols, prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes when they brought forth a prophecy, they would do it via symbols. Jeremiah, for example, walked around for quite a while with a yoke around his neck. And he was talking to them, saying to them that God wants you to build houses, plant vineyards, submit yourself to the king of Babylon, and submit yourself and put yourself under his yoke. And all the other priests and prophets of that time which were false priests and false prophets they all contradicted jeremiah and finally hananiah took the yoke off his neck broke it and said thus shall uh, god break the yoke of the king of babylon and we will not come under 
his bondage, under his um, direction. The reason that they kept prophesying this was they had an attitude that said, the temple of the Lord is here in Jerusalem, and that's where God dwells. And so God is not going to allow these Gentile heathens to come in and destroy Jerusalem because that's where his throne is. And they could not fathom that God would actually depart and leave from the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's what Jeremiah was prophesying. And Ezekiel, he's doing the very same thing. You find uh, over in the book of Isaiah 20, without turning there, Isaiah, he, he went about for three years naked and barefoot, bringing forth his message. It was portraying the uh, captivity that uh, they would go through when they were led off captive into Assyria. And there were many other prophets that did things that when they, they would actually act out their prophecies. So Ezekiel acted out his prophecies. We spoke about a few of them. I want to mention just a few more today, and then I'm going to summarize up this, summarize it up. He was told, for example, to take an take and sketch the city of Jerusalem out on a clay tile. And he, so he sketched it out, and then he laid on his side for 430 days. Now, exactly how long he had to lay there, I don't know. I mean, if it was 24 hours a day, then obviously it'd be supernatural. But it, it doesn't specify how long he had to lay there, but for 430 days in a row... He would lay on his side on the ground and he would simulate battles against this clay tile that had Jerusalem upon it. He took an iron pan and he put that pan between the tile and himself at some points and that was to illustrate that he was protected from the battles that were coming forth uh, on that clay tile. So for 430 days, this is what he did. He had to eat a very strict diet. God specified what it was, and it was food that was defiled, that Israel would not be permitted normally to eat. He wanted, it, he wanted uh, Ezekiel to cook it over human dung, and Ezekiel begged him and said, no, please, not human dung. And God said, all right, then you're going to cook it over animal dung. So he would daily, now <laughs> this is daily, you got to picture this, He's laying there cooking his food, defiled food, not saying a word, playing this army siege against this clay tile. And the people in Judah, the elders of Judah, they're just looking at him like, what in the world is this guy doing? And so he did that, and what it was doing was portraying the uh, siege that was going to come upon Jerusalem, that they were going to be judged and they were going to be destroyed. Why 430 days? Well, as we said, if you take the time under King Jehoiakim, I believe it is, it's Kim or Chin, if you start at that date, you go 430 years forward, you come to 167. And 167 brings you to the Maccabean Revolt. And of course, we talked about this in pretty good detail. We were talking about how this is celebrated by the Jews today under what's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah takes place during the time period uh, in December. And what it is, is it was one period for about seven years, 167 to 160 BC, where they actually were able to get their, their, their uh, land back and they sovereignly were able to get Jerusalem back. 
Actually, we're talking here more about Jerusalem than 1948. Jerusalem came back to Israel in uh, 1967. But anyways, to make a long story short, you can see on the board, the Maccabean Revolt is what is celebrated in Hanukkah. Antiochus, who was the ruler at that time, he was one of the generals that was spun off of Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, four generals took his uh, conquerings, and it was divided up. One of those was the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus was over that empire. It was Antiochus IV, and he hated the Jews uh, very bitterly. He decreed that all Jewish religious practice in Palestine was to be put to an end. We went into quite a bit of detail about Antiochus last week. Um, any kind of scroll, anything relating to Israel was destroyed. And he commanded that in the temple, this would be the temple that's going to be built under Ezra Nehemiah time. Under that time, he then ordered that they were to offer up sacrifices that had not been set up by God. Antiochus himself offered a pig up on the altar of that. So he ordered the priest to offer up sacrifice. Matthias who was a priest, refused to do that. And another priest jumped in his place, a Hellenistic Jew, to do what Matthias wouldn't do. And as he proceeded to offer up the sacrifice, Matthias killed him. Then he took his five sons with him and they took off for the wilderness. When they took off for the wilderness, a year later, one of his sons, Judah Maccabee, led an army of Jewish dissidents to victory over that Seleucid dynasty, by this time, Antiochus had died, and they came in and got back the city. Um, let me read to you the end here. The revolt involved many battles, and after the victory, the Maccabees entered Jerusalem in triumph, richly cleansed the temple, reestablished traditional Jewish worship, and they installed jo Jonathan Maccabee as the high priest. Now, they would always light the menorah. That's that candlestick with several things sticking up. They didn't have the original golden menorah, but they made one out of either brass or bronze. They put it in, and they only had enough oil for one day. That oil had to be sanctified, set apart specifically by the law, and had to be blessed by the priest. They only had enough oil for one day, and they lit it. Now, oil in the Bible indicates what? The presence of the Holy Spirit. So they lit it, and it continued to burn after one day, two days, three days, four days, five days. It continued to burn eight days. It never went out. On the eighth day, they were able to refill it with oil that had been now found and blessed by the priest and sanctified and set apart. But it burned for eight days solid without going out. And this was interpreted by the Jews then that this is a sign that God had not forsaken them. And that God was still with them. Now this is, you're going to remember, uh, about 150 years before Christ. So the Messiah, they still were looking for the Messiah. The Messiah came, of course, they rejected him. And we know that from there, they still are scattered, were scattered abroad until God began to bring them into the nation, gave them a sovereign nation, gave them their city back, and so forth. All of this being fulfilled in the latter portions of Ezekiel. So it was a period of time that 430 days that Ezekiel laid on his side during that period, it was depicting the number of years that they would be under that 
domination of foreign rule. Well, let's go on from there. There's, there's a lot of things I said in those two weeks. I'm not going to spend the time and uh, go back over it all. But let's talk about a few other things that Ezekiel acted out. In Ezekiel chapter 5, what he does is he now shaves his head and shaves off his beard. Ezekiel 5, 1, he says, Thou son of man, take thee a, a sharp knife, take thee a barber's razor, cause it to pass upon thine head and upon thine beard, and then take the balances to weigh and divide the hair. So what he did was he cut all of his hair off, and he divided it up into three portions, put it on balances to whereby he had to have exact amounts of those three portions. That must have been quite a bit of quite a bit of hair, because hair the hair doesn't weigh all that much. When he did that, then what he was to do was divide it up. He was going to have a third was going to be burned by fire, a third was going to be cut up by a sword, and the last third was going to be thrown into the wind and spread abroad. There was a very small little portion that he would take, and he was to put them in his skirt. He would, he would put them, no doubt, into his garment. To me, it kind of looks like he's putting a very small portion of it next to his heart, and it later on, some of it is going to depict what is left in, Jerusalem, left in Jerusalem after it's been destroyed. Jeremiah would have been a part of that group. Some of them later on get killed, but some of them escape, and they go on. But it talks, it symbolizes a remnant. Because God here reveals to Ezekiel that in spite of the fact that all of the people in Jerusalem and all of his people now are going to be judged and destroyed or scattered abroad, there's a remnant that he has his hand upon. And this comes out a little later with, a, with an angelic being that goes forth and puts a mark on the head of these people, this remnant, and they are spared from any kind of judgment that occurs. To me, in principle, can easily apply to some things that the book of Revelation talks about. But anyways, in chapter 5, he goes forth, and it talks about how that he sets his hair apart. Chapter 6, then, begins to describe the, the reason why that he's going to destroy some of them with fire and destroy some of them with uh, with a sword, and others are going to be scattered. Now, if you can picture this, here's a guy, he's laying on his side. In the 413th day, this is in chapter 8, laying on his side, he shaves his head, shaves his beard, and then he gets up, lays that hair out in three clumps, sets fire to one clump, takes the sword out, chop, 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 on the rest of the clumps that are there, and the rest he throws him up into the air. And the elders of Judah that are, that are there in Babylon at that time, they're like looking at him like, they're finally beginning to recognize that this is God's prophet, but they're trying to figure out exactly what he's saying. And keep in mind, up to this point, all the prophets are saying, there's no way Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. It's the temple of the Lord. God wouldn't destroy his temple. God is, God is there. He's not going to bring destruction upon himself. So what he does is he, as he lets all these things go, he begins to start describing why that God is going to depart from Jerusalem and why he's going to destroy it. And when he does this, he turns, in chapter 6, he turns to the mountains. Now, get the picture. He's bald-headed, bald-shaved, chopped up this hair, 
cast it to the wind, and now he turns to the hills. He isn't, that'd be like me turning to this wall, and I'm going to start preaching and prophesying to this wall. He's not prophesying to the people. He's prophesying to the mountains. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. So he's, he's now going to begin to start speaking to the hills and mountains. And say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys. Behold, I even I will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be desolate. Your images shall be broken. And I will cast down slain men before you. I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones round about your altars. And in all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, the high places shall be desolate, your altars will be laid waste and made desolate, and your idols may be, that your idols may be broken and cease, and your images may be cut down, and your works may be, may be abolished. Now included in this, he's told over in chapter 6 and verse 11, not only is he to prophesy to these mountains, but he's also to clap his hands and stomp his feet. Verse 11, thus saith the Lord, smite with thine hand, stamp with thy foot, and say, Alas, for the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence. Now picture this, he's laying on his side, the elders are standing before him, he gets up, he prophesies to the hills and the mountains, and while he's doing that, he's clapping his hands, stomping his feet, and prophesying. Bald-headed, shaved i mean i'm sure that in 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 one sense people looked at him like this guy's crazy okay but this is the way that he acted out his prophecy well if you look over to lamentation chapter two we tend to think of of uh, clapping our hands and so forth as a means of rejoicing but it's also a, a uh, a sign of reproach, a sign of dismay. Uh, look over to Lamentation chapter 2. I didn't get into the book of Lamentations. I might mention a few things later on, but I'm not going to get into it in detail. It was written by Jeremiah. And in chapter, 15, or in chapter 2, verse 15, it's talking about this destruction. Keep in mind, Jeremiah's got this same message, but he's over in Judah. And... Here Jeremiah is saying, God is saying unto him, uh, Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. And all pass by, he's talking about now uh, Jerusalem would be destroyed, all that pass by will clap their hands at thee. They will hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They say, We've swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we've looked for. We have found it and we have seen it. And so he's talking about the same thing where they would clap their hands but it was not uh, something of rejoicing. It was just, 
it was a sign of, of dismay. It was a sign of um, abhorrence of, uh, by Ezekiel. So here he is prophesying to the mountains. He shaved his head. He takes the hair. He burns it, cuts it, lets it loose to the wind. He's clamping his hands. He's stomping his feet, and he's prophesying to the mountains. Now, why the mountains? The mountains he prophesies to, the reason why is because that's where all of the idolatry and so forth that occurred, much of it occurred up on the mountains and the hills. They would, sell, they would worship their pagan idols under their, uh, under their trees and under the altars that they would set up. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, when he says this, he says, Son of man, verse 2, set thy face against the mountains of Israel, and prophesy against them. And say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains, and to the hills and the rivers and the valleys, behold, I even will bring a sword upon you. I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall be desolate. Your images shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain men before you. I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones round about. We already read that again. I'm reading it again, but that's what he's that's what he's judging them for, is because so much of the idolatry that they had gotten into. Now, if we jump over to chapter eight, it picks back up again in chapter eight to whereby God's going to show him in greater detail what they've gotten into. And so, in chapter eight, this is about the 413th day. It gives you the date here. It's in the Jewish calendar. It came to pass in the sixth year, sixth month, fifth day of the month. As I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord fell there upon me. And I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins, even downward, fire from his loins, even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. And he put forth the form of a hand, and took me by a lock of mine head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me into the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh unto jealousy. So what it is, he's saying that he now is caught up in the Spirit, and he's given a vision. Now we could trace this through in other places, like in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, I forget the chapter, he talks about being caught up into the third heaven. If you remember, Peter, James, and John were caught up into, they were transformed, uh, they were caught up with the Lord, and, and Jesus was transformed before them, and so forth. So this type of thing has occurred in the Bible. Uh, my wife, I noticed the other day on Amazon, she bought somebody, some lady she's been ministering to, bought her one of the books called Visions Beyond the Veil. Have any of you ever read that or remember that? Some of you might, like the Manguses might. Do you remember those books, guys? Visions Beyond the Veil? It's about Indonesian children. And I'm thinking this was in the <coughs> 60s. It's, it's some Indonesian children. And they are caught up in the Spirit by God. They record these things and they saw... Uh, tremendous miracles and things that were going on in that nation. God was pouring out his spirit upon that nation. 
So he gets caught up in the spirit, in a vision, and God brings him now to the city of Jerusalem. All of this, by the way, he's prophesying years before the city's destroyed. He's caught up and he's brought into the city. And when he's brought into the city, God's going to show him why that great judgment now is going to come upon Jerusalem. The first thing that he sees is an image that's called the image of jealousy. It's right there in verse 3, the latter part of it. And he says, God, there were visions of God to Jerusalem where he was brought to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north where he was the seat of the image of jealousy which provoked him to jealousy. What this probably was is over in Second Chronicles 33 and verse 7, Historically, when you go back, if you remember, uh, you had Hezekiah, and Hezekiah brought a great restoration and revival to the nation. But after that, his son took his place, which was Manasseh. And Manasseh was far worse than, than any, and he brought in idols and statues and figures into Jerusalem and basically said, like Aaron, here, O Israel, is your God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 7, you can see where he brought some kind of an image in and told Israel to worship them. 2 Chronicles 33, 7, talking about Manasseh, he set a carved image, an idol, which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove thy foot from Israel, from out of the land which I have pointed your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them. But in verse 9, Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So he set up this image, this statue. And it was of, uh, many believed, the, one of the Canaanite gods, which was Ashtoreth. So he set it up, and now it appears like after Manasseh, then came uh, Josiah, and then after Josiah came the last five kings, who were all sons of Josiah, Zedekiah being the last, that as they moved away from what young King Josiah had done, they'd gotten back to putting that same statue back up. So he shows Ezekiel this statue that is in Jerusalem, this image of another God that is there, and he says this is the image of jealousy. God was jealous. Why was he jealous? He was jealous because they were putting their affection toward that and not toward him. That's why he doesn't want us to try to portray him on canvas or try to portray him in a picture or try to portray him in some kind of a statue because that's not him. And the attention and the affection of people is transferred from, it is transferred to an object they can see and not one that should be done in spirit and truth. So he calls it, here, an image of jealousy. Then he goes on and he tells him uh, that he is to go over. He says, see this hole in the wall? He tells him to go over this hole in the wall and to dig with, into the hole. So he goes over and he digs in this wall, in this hole, and he sees a door. And when he opens the door, there are the 70 elders that are behind this door and they're all bowing down and worshiping false gods and false idols. This is what's happened to the 
to the high priesthood and the elders in Jerusalem. And he tells him that because he has deported the people in 605 and 597, the elders have decided that God is no longer with them anymore. And so they've turned their backs upon him. And they now are worshiping other gods. Then he goes out to another place. And he expresses there how that they are, uh, he looks at, he talks about the women that are worshiping Tammuz. And Tammuz was another god, and the, it was the crop god. They would cry out to Tammuz for rain, to whereby they could get crops and so forth. And they had turned their backs completely on the Lord, to whereby they no longer were looking unto him to give them the rain and bless them in their land. Then he, then he turned to another group of people, and they had turned their backs to the temple, turned their backs to Yahweh, and they were worshiping the sun. And so he goes through in this vision, and God is showing him all the different idolatry that is occurring in that city. And he says, because of all the idolatry that is here, this is why I'm judging this city. He takes them over to another group where there are 25 priests. They've got their backs turned to the temple. And there's one individual in that group who is speaking to them about how that no harm is going to come to Jerusalem because this is the house and temple and so forth of the Lord. And this is over in, uh, look at chapter 11. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 29 and chapter 11. Keep in mind, Jeremiah is at the same time doing the same thing. In Jeremiah 11, or I'm sorry, I want Ezekiel 11, Jeremiah 29, <clears throat> and verse 5. Let's read this one first. Jeremiah 29. This is the message of Jeremiah that's being contradicted. In verse 4, it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit thereof, take wives, beget sons and daughters, take the wives and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And he tells them there to seek the peace of the city and that this they're going to be captive. He says they're not going to be able to come back to Jerusalem. Verse 10 for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and I'll perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place. This is going to be under the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you look over to Ezekiel chapter 11, in Ezekiel 11 verse 1, it says, Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house. He's still seeing visions in Jerusalem before it is destroyed. He lifted me up and brought me into the east gate of the Lord's house, which looked eastward. And behold, the door of the gate, there were five and twenty men whom I saw. Jezaniah, the son of Azar, Pelaniah, the son of Belial, the princes of the people, and he said unto me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel to the city, which is Jeremiah 29, that none of these things, totally contradicting Jeremiah. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man, 
And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and I said, and said unto me, Speak. Thus saith the Lord, Thus have you, O house of Israel, for I know the things that are coming to your mind, every one of them. You've multiplied your slain in the city. You've filled the streets thereof with the slain. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, your slain whom you've laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh, and this is the city, and this city is the cauldron, but I will bring you forth out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you. I will bring you out of the midst thereof and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments among you, and so forth. So he's speaking here to this, to this individual in particular. It goes on to say that, verse 13, it came to pass that when I prophesied that Pelatiah, who was the head speaker of that group, the son of Beniah, he died. Then fell I down on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And he raises questions here about a remnant. So he goes forth through all of this and he uh, describes how the, the judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed because of their idolatry. Now, if you look over to um, chapter... Oh, where did I write it down in? Look at chapter 10. Let me find it. We have here chapter 9 and verse 1. What we have then is that God shows him that he's going to bring forth some destroying angels. Chapter 9. He cried in my ears. This is while he's still there in a vision looking at Jerusalem. He cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near every, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And the one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And he went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. This is the remnant. God said, this is that little group that he put uh, in another place, separated by the hair. To the others, he said, go after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly the old, the young, the maids, the children, the women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. And then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and they slew in the city. 
And it came to pass while they were slaying them that I fell on my face and cried out, Ah, Lord God, will thou destroy all the residue of Israel in the pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? And he said unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of perverseness. For they say the Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. And as for me, mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with the linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast said. Now the marking of people, the marking of this remnant, what God is doing here is he's saying, I'm setting aside a remnant. They're going to be scattered to the wind, but one day I'm going to restore this remnant. If you look over to Jeremiah 31, in verse 31, uh, I don't have the time to get into a full study on the remnant, but this still applies today. The uh, Bible says when Jesus returns and those they shall see him, there will be a remnant that will believe on him as the Messiah, and they will be restored. Jeremiah talks about it, Jeremiah 31, 31. He says here uh, in verse, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with them, their fathers in that day, that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which is my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, saying, Every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of men unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now you combine that together with Ezekiel 36. This is that remnant that is being marked, and they're going to be protected and delivered from any kind of catastrophe that comes. They're going to be scattered, but one day he's going to take of that group and he's going to restore. Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, talking about the remnant here. Uh, let's look. Verse 24. He says, I will take you from among the heathen and I will gather you out of all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. And a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And he talks about in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3, he talks about 12,000 that come from every tribe of Israel and how that they have a mark upon them. 
Revelation 7 says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on, the tree, on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard a number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And so out of all the tribes comes a remnant that is sealed in the latter days, and that group is protected and kept from the, from the hour of the great, well, they're not delivered from the great tribulation, but they're preserved during that particular period of time. So all of these things uh, tie together with Ezekiel and with Jeremiah, bringing forth the same truth. So in conclusion, let me give you another, I didn't keep up with this. In conclusion, Ezekiel's message of judgment, it continues all the way through to the end of chapter 19, and he comes out with a variety of signs and parables, all bringing forth the very same thing. And a statement is made in chapter 14 and verse 14 that there's no way this can be reversed. This is going to happen because of all the idolatry that, that Judah has gotten into. And God makes a statement in chapter 14. He says, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they could only save, themselves, save their own souls by their righteousness. Now, all of this occurred before 586 B.C. And then came the day when the judgment came forth. I'd like to read something, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. Josephus is a historian, Jewish historian. And he is one that has recorded events that have occurred uh, in connection with the scriptures. And he gives a lot of information that goes back all the way from, from the time of Christ back. He's a very renowned Jewish historian. Let me just read to you what he said occurred in 586 and 587 BC at the destruction of the city. He said this siege they endured for 18 months. For 18 months, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded. Now they had great walls and it was very difficult that, they rarely got penetrated through. And pictures have depicted it that there were tens of thousands of Babylonians just surrounding the whole city. No one could get in, no one could get out. The pestilence was unreal. There was uh, pestilence, there was disease. Cannibalism set in to whereby um, Ezekiel said, God told Ezekiel, the fathers would eat their sons, their sons would eat their fathers. It was, it was uh, a very devastating thing that occurred. That's why he was slapping and clapping uh, his feet. So he says here, I'll just read this. This siege they endured for 18 months until they were destroyed by the famine, by the darts which the enemy threw at them from the towers. Now the city was taken on the ninth day of the fourth month in the 11th year of the reign of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king and they were all sons and descendants of Josiah. 
Zedekiah was only in his early 20s, and he was one that Nebuchadnezzar put in place over the city. But we talked about this earlier, how he listened to the elders of the city, that there's no way the city could be destroyed. So he made, a, he made a league with Egypt, turned his back upon Babylon. That drew Nebuchadnezzar in with great fury, and that was the final third time that the city was destroyed. When the city was taken, now the city was taken on the ninth day of the fourth month, 11th year of the reign of Zedekiah. And when the city was taken about midnight, and the enemy's generals were entered into the temple. When Zedekiah was sensible of it, he took his wives, his children, his captains, his friends, and with them fled out of the city, through the fortified ditch and through the desert. And when certain of the deserters had informed the Babylonians of this, at break of day they made haste to pursue after Zedekiah and overtook him not far from Jericho and encompassed him about but those friends and captains of Zedekiah, they fled out of the, that fled out of the city with him. When they saw their enemies near them, they left him and dispersed themselves. Some went one way, some another. And everyone resolved to save himself. So the enemy took Zedekiah alive. And when he was deserted by all but a few, with his children and his wives, and brought to the king... When he was come, Nebuchadnezzar began to call him a wicked wretch and a covenant breaker. He was put in power by Nebuchadnezzar. And one that had forgotten his former words when he promised to keep the country for him. He also reproached him for his ingratitude that when he had received the kingdom from him, he had made use of the power he gave him against him that gave it. But, said he, God is great who hated that conduct of thine and hath brought thee under me this like Nebuchadnezzar speaking to Zedekiah and when he had used these words to Zedekiah he commanded his sons and his friends to be slain while Zedekiah and the rest of the captains looked on after which he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him and carried him to Babylon and these things happened to him as Jeremiah and Ezekiel had foretold to him that he should be caught and brought before the king of Babylon, and should not speak to him, and should speak to him face to face, and should see his eyes, and should see his eyes with his own eyes. And thus far did Jeremiah prophesy, but he also was made blind and brought to Babylon, but did not see it according to the prediction of Ezekiel. So here's Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicting that Zedekiah is going to be brought before Nebuchadnezzar, that he is going to be rebuked before him and that he will see Nebuchadnezzar but then when he is drug off to Babylon his eyes will be plucked out now in Jeremiah 34 1 through 3 these are the verses that Josephus was talking about give me a minute and I'll read these real quick to you this is exact this is the way that it happened and of course it happened many years before it actually occurred Jeremiah 34 1 reads like this. Now this is where he's going to be able to see things. Jeremiah 34, the word of the Lord which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth of, of his dominion and the people fought against Jerusalem and against the cities thereof. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah and tell him, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give you 
I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And thou shalt not escape out of his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand, and thine eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon, and he will speak with thee mouth to mouth, and thou shalt go to Babylon. And that's what he did. He rebuked him and, you know, for breaking his covenant. And then he was taken to Babylon, but he's taken to Babylon and he was blinded. His eyes were plucked out. Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse 10. Ezekiel twelve ten. he talks about how that he will not be able to see these things. Uh, let's start with Ezekiel 12. Verse 9, Son of man, hath not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said unto thee, What doest thou? Say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord, This burden concerneth the prince in Jerusalem, that would be, Ze that would be Zedekiah, and the house of Israel that are among them. Say, I am your sign. Like as I have done, so shall it be done unto them. They shall remove and go into captivity. And the prince that is among them, that's Zedekiah, shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight and go forth and they shall dig through the wall to carry out thereby and he shall cover his face and he shall not see the ground with his eyes. My net will I spread upon him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of captivity, yet he shall not see it, though he shall be there." He won't see it, and the reason why is because when he left the face of Nebuchadnezzar, his eyes were plucked out, and he remained in Babylon the rest of his life. This man, this, this young man was in his 20s when all this occurred, so he probably spent 30, 40 years in Babylon being blinded and was once the king of Israel. So it's interesting... I won't go any farther with Ezekiel into this, but this is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what they're talking about is all of the idolatry and corruption that was coming into Judah to finally, and I didn't read it, where God said, I'm gone, I'm out of here, Ichabod. And he departs and he goes up to that chariot in a chariot, the wheel within a wheel. He departs and the glory of God leaves and it's only until 430 years later when that menorah stays lit that I see some glimpse and hope. And, of course, and there's some in Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was a big one with, with uh, the Maccabeans to whereby they still see that God has not completely, totally forsaken them. Now, much of the book of Ezekiel gets into how that he will one day, Ezekiel looks out to a valley of dry bones and he speaks to the bones, and the bones come together, and that's the nation of Israel that is coming together as he speaks to the bones. You know, they used to sing a song about that when we were kids, something about them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Remember? <laughs> that's what it's all about. Well, I'm not going to go any further with the destruction element of Ezekiel. But it's, I, I find it very interesting all the different ways that these things were brought forth and they truly did come to pass. Father, we just thank you for understanding that you've given us as we've studied a little bit of the book of Ezekiel. And you told us in the New Testament that these things were recorded and written not just to record historical events, 
but we're to learn from these things. And surely, as we've seen how that you were jealous and angry at the idolatry and the love toward material things and false gods, how angry you were with Israel. And you've told us in the New Testament the same thing, to flee idolatry. And the idols that we worship may not be statues of Greek gods, but we can put our affection and our attention upon other things instead of you and what you've said. And we're to learn from these things in turn while we have the time that we don't lose out on the rewards and blessings you've given us. Father, cover every, cover everybody here with the blood of Jesus. And I pray that you'd protect them and keep them safe on the roads as they go home. And I just thank you for them coming to hear your word and put that blessing upon them in Jesus' name. Amen.